Um, so thank you for coming today. Um, I'm actually going to kick off the, with a, a general introduction to the whole idea of texts and translations of language and computer work. Um, my background is uh, I direct uh, a research forum in Queen's University, Belfast, uh, Betwixt and Between. Uh, and uh, that's, the, that's the website there if, uh, if anyone's interested. Um, this event's also supported by the Out of the Wings project. Uh, and again, that's the, uh, the website address for that. Uh, the Out of the Wings project, and there are a number of people here today from the Out of the Wings project, is a project AHRC funded, which is fundamentally concerned to make the riches of Spanish theatre available on an interactive uh, website to English-speaking practitioners. Uh, Spanish theatre, both Golden Age and modern, and Latin American, Spanish-American theatre as well. So the project has just kicked off, but uh, that's, um, uh, that's the website, and you know, do have a look at it. Uh, in fact, that's the, the front page, the home page of the website as well, with the, with the address. And uh, making clear it's a contextualized resource of Spanish language plays for English language practitioners and research. Our central uh, concern, as I said before, is to bridge this gap between practitioners, professional practitioners, and academics, so that we're all working with versions of plays, and we're all working in spaces that are fit for purpose for these plays. Um, the, I'd also like to thank Oberon Books. Uh, they've published uh, both of the plays you'll see today, uh, The House of Bernard Alba and Play Without a Title. Um, and uh, the book will be on sale at some point in the theatre today, and at a special price of five pounds. No, I don't get any royalties. Uh, the sales won't be enough for that. But uh, that, that, that book will be on, on sale. Uh, today as well. The whole idea of this uh, symposium today is to explore the many Lorcas, not one Lorca, but the many Lorcas that the act of translation opens up. Uh, well, the many Lorcas can take a number of forms. Uh, some of you may have seen this photograph before. This is a photograph that records a moment which is astonishing in theatre history. It's almost unique. It was when Federico García Lorca came from Spain and on his way to the States stopped off in Ireland and met his counterpart, Fred O'Lorca. <laughs> as you can see, the only difference between them is the culture-specific item, for those of you that are <laughs> translation study scholars, of one drinks red wine and one drinks pints of stout. Uh, in fact, uh, Lorca, the, the, the Spanish Lorca, was horrified at the amount of alcohol that his Irish counterpart was, <laughs> was consuming. Um, so very often, of course the serious point of the picture is that very often we tend to think that the different faces of a writer merely occur through choices of location. We can set Lorca in Spain, and we can set Lorca in, in Ireland very, very frequently. We, we, uh, we slide into this pan-Celtic uh, world where Lorca is deemed to be much more authentic than in an English-speaking environment. Um, but of course, when we talk about many Lorcas, we're talking about something much more complicated. We're talking about the very act of performance itself. Um, can, can people read that? 
from the from the bank. Uh, I saw a hand going up there. I'm not sure in desperation or uh, in acknowledgement. Marvin Carlson. Uh, the physical surroundings of performance never act as a totally neutral filter or frame. They are themselves always culturally encoded and have always, sometimes blatantly, sometimes subtly, contributed to the perception of performance. So that every, when, when, when we perform a Lorca or any other play, the performance in which that play takes place is also a way of understanding the new potentials for relationships, for meaning, that are in that play. Uh, it, was, it was actually Einstein, uh, which is a very good quotation, but it was Einstein who said that when we study any object, we also have to study it from the perspective of the relativity of the frame in which that object is encased. So, in a way, to talk about Lorca without talking about the frame of performance is to abstract Lorca from those very important relationships that the theatre creates. Translation, above all else, is about creating a difference. It's about being aware of difference. Willis Barnstone, translation, as with all transcription and reading of texts, creates a difference. It's not a question of photocopying interlingually from one language to another, but it's about being aware of the ways in which as texts travel across time, as texts travel across space, they accrue new potentials for meaning. Translation fundamentally brings home the instability of texts. It brings home their potential to generate meanings, to relate to situations which at one time were very far from them. So that the Trojan women uh, Sophocles is a play about the Northern Irish peace process in Seamus Heaney's version of it. Without twisting the play, without relocating it, the audience perceives it in that way. And that's because performance is always conjugated as a present tense verb. You can't have performance in the past, you can't have performance in the future. An audience is here and now, and it experiences a play in the hereness and nowness of the theatre. So while the audience is living rigorously in the present moment of that performance, the translator is looking at the very and exploring the various possibilities that that hereness and nowness opens up for the play traveling through time and space. And that creates a unique intersection, a unique interstice. It creates the frame which allows us to say there's something unique happening at this particular moment. <coughs> so it's not a question of looking at Lorca from the point of view of shall I set him in Spain? Shall I, shall I do uh, a Fredo Lorca, Begara and Bejabers job on him? Where am I going to set? It's not a question of location or relocation. Um, there are issues that we can look at there, but fundamentally with Lorca, it's a question of keeping Lorca's language alive for a particular performance and for a particular style of performance. Unfortunately, there are many theatre directors, many, some actors as well, 
have, be, have developed this sense of a, a reified Lorcan language, a language that becomes objectified as passionate, full of uh, a particular style of imagery. As we begin to stultify Lorca's language, as we begin to translate Lorca in the same way again and again and again, the players lose their capacity genuinely to move, to provoke and to shock. And the spectator of the English language plays is, developed, is delivered into a world of remorseless cultural pastiche. If they're set in Spain, they are delivered through a language of flamenco, frantic hand clapping, the strumming of guitars, sh shouts of ole, which, as I've said before, would be the equivalent of a Spanish theatre company setting Macbeth to shouts of Hootsman. Uh, it would be simple cultural pastiche. It's ventriloquized passions. We need to keep Lorca's language alive every time we translate. One of my favorite writers at the moment is Michel de Certeau. Uh, writes with all of the intellectual uh, insight of the Jesuit that he is. Uh, wonderful, wonderful writer. Michel de Certeau says, in translation, to attempt to freeze the language of the original inhibits our capacity, in the words of Michel Certeau, referring to museum, museum bound art in general, it inhibits our capacity to wonder what made it possible, to seek, in passing over its landscape, traces of the movement that formed it, to discover within it histories supposedly led to rest. If translation is an activity which is inevitably haunted by the difference between languages, if translation is an activity that inevitably straddles the, the ever-changing borderlines between cultures. It also is an opportunity to look at a text and try and restore something of its freshness to it. To try and restore something of its original purchase <coughs> on the audience of the original time. Alfred Gell talks about cultural utility. He says, um, this idea of utility is of added importance in performance arts such as theatre. Any cultural artifact may be read as an exteriorization of artistic identity, a place where agency stops and assumes visible form. In other words, the particularity, for example, of the theatre text is inseparable from the way in which that text exteriorizes or performs the artistic project of its author. So when we translate the House of Bernard Alba, or any other Lorca play, what is it we're actually translating? And what, we're, what it seems to me what we should be doing is not looking solely at the words, but looking at how the words function within a particular social and cultural environment at the time, and trying then to recreate that cultural utility <coughs> now. And 
The other possibility in translation, because what I don't want to do is be prescriptive here. The other possibility that translation gives us is to, yesterday was Halloween, so let's talk about ghosts. Uh, the other possibility is to begin to bring back to life some of the ghosts that are lurking in these texts. Lorca now has become reified as the king of Spanish passion. The Spanish passion of Lorca, if we don't exoticize it through the distancing of the flamenco world, if we, um, Paul Binding in his book, uh, Paul's talking later on, quotes this marvelous um, um, saying from uh, Stephen Spender, who talks about Lorca's grammar of images. And Lorca's grammar of images is routinely reduced by directors and actors to the simple adjectival appeal of an Andalusian tourist guide. It loses the, the vitality of the play. It loses what the play can do in the most powerful way at all. Not give us an insight into a world of flamenco and of Spanish passions. And God protect us from blending. <laughs> One of the most overused uh, ideas that you know that, that people try and bring to to to, to, to Lorca's theatre, but instead, what we can do is to begin to think about the different layers that went into Lorca's play in the original moment, and to begin to try and recreate some of those layers to give life to those old ghosts. Writing at a time of increasing social and political polarization, Lorca's theatre becomes, above all else, a site of cultural resistance to the simplistic politics of denial, of negation, of opprobrium. It's a theatre which, in the phrase of Paul Valéry, a poet from Lorca was tremendously fond, it's a theatre which, above all else, encourages us to name that which has no name. A theatre which talks of the shows absent, the things which are absent from us, the things that we do not have. It's not about a restless quest for sexual encounter, as very often we see Lorca performed. It is about a yearning for something which is not defined. It's about a yearning for a, a state which is personal to all of us that we don't occupy. I think this takes Lorca right back into the heart of Greek tragedy. And we don't need to set Lorca in Spain. We don't need to set Lorca in England. Because in England, his these restless energies that are in his writing spill over into melodrama so easily. We don't need to set Lorca anywhere other than where he belongs. And that is in the theatre. We don't need to build Andalusian houses. We don't need to transport Lorca into the world of the, of the Irish peasant. Instead, what we need to graft Lorca back into is the living wood of theatre. 
And I think that in the case of Lorca and the players that uh, the players like Bernard Alba and Bloodletting and Yerma, that living wood is the living wood of, of tragedy, of Greek tragedy. There's a there's a starkness there, there's a simplicity there. Tonight's production of uh, Bernard Alba uh, was the first version I did was an Irish version, and it was word heavy. Uh, and this, we then started tearing it back, and it now has the the starkness of a of a Greek tragedy. But as with all of Lorca's plays, as all of Lorca's writing, and of Lorca's music as well, there's always discord, there's always disharmony. Uh, it's 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 Stravinsky meets flamenco in many ways in terms of his music, and. That's true of his tragedy as well. The elements of discord, the, the jarring notes, the, as the Birmingham Post put it, the off-the-wallness of, of tonight's production. Uh, all of this brings Lorca to a point where his is a dissonant voice within a, within a living, vital tradition. And I think that, uh, that sort of sense of him being a dissonant voice in that living tradition is where his real artistry lies. So rather than I.A. Richards talks about uh, the interanimation of words in a text, I.A. Richards uh, has this terribly understated phrase where he talks about translation being the most complex event yet in the history of the cosmos. Uh, you should try getting a taxi in Belfast. <laughs> And he, the reason why he thinks of it as the most complex event is he's struggling with both the words and the interanimation of the words on the page. And he's trying to get all of the things which denote something, and all of the connotations, and all of that constellation of meanings and echoes and ghosts. He's trying to pull them all together to interanimate on the page. But of course, in theatre, where interanimation occurs is in the auditorium, between the stage and, and the audience. Between this play, traveling through time and space, which has stopped here for a moment, to stop for a moment, before, to, to be performed in front of a living audience, here and now, before it goes on somewhere else. We all know that the Mona Lisa is in the Louvre. Where is Bernard Alba? Where does it exist? It doesn't exist anywhere unless it exists in the air in the theatre. And if we approach the text as a product always in transition, something that isn't internally fixed, then the translator is the opportunity to recreate something of the text's original purchase on the imagination. It's cultural work. A voice coming right from Greek tragedy Stopping exteriorized through Lorca's identity, through the specific context of Lorca's world, but keeping on moving as well. Then we maybe can do something about play's utility. Let me just finish by looking at an opening scene from Bolesa uh, Sangre, uh, Blood Wedding. Right at the very start, it's when the mother decides that uh, the mother goes uh, bananas when she hears her son mentioning the, the knife 
la navaja, la navaja, y las escopetas y las pistolas, y el cuchillo más pequeño, y hasta las azadas y los bielgos de la era. So, there's a whole debate going on in Hispanism as to what these various things may be. The Penguin translation has knives, knives, and guns and pistols, and the smallest little knife, and even hoes and pitchforks. Not a great rhythm in that. Ted Hughes, the knife, the knife, and guns and pistols, even the tiniest little knife, even pitchforks and mattocks. I don't know what a mattock is. <laughs> Brendan Kennelly, this is interesting. Brendan Kennelly did his version uh, at the time of the uh, Northern Irish peace process. And uh, at the very end of the play, he wants to get out of this haunted place. And just a couple of references in his, uh, in his translation brings the play memorably into the, the whole ambit of the peace process for the play moves on in this journey through time and space. Brendan Kennelly is an Irish poet. The knife, the knife, and the curse of God and guns, machine guns, rifles, pistols, and knives, even the smallest knife, and scythes and pitchforks, brilliantly performable lines. Herbert Ramsden, in his edition of the play, notes that the farm implements Lorca mentions take their basic meaning and their emotive resonances I didn't know farm implements had emotive resonances from a cultural complex different from our own. He puts forward a number of possible translations. Drag hoe, pickaxe, winnowing fork, pitchfork, all of which he argues will permit English readers of his published edition to process the text within a familiar context. That's not what it's about. The play is not located on a farm. Play is not located in that the world where these things really matter what they are in terms of a vocabulary. What matters is the overtone of menace, of threat, of cutting, of bleeding, of mutilation. That's the language that we inherit from, from the play. Not this Lorcan world where the grammar of images is fixed so rigorously to specific items. Leo Hicking takes an opposing view. He says, uh, either consciously or unconsciously, um, echoing uh, both, uh, well, echoing the ability, a translator can attempt either to bring the source text to the reader with all of its locutionary, elocutionary, and perlocutionary <coughs> import, in other words, all the things that language does, wherever the reader may be, or else take the reader complete with any baggage of cultural or linguistic background that may be attached to such a person, into the world, the linguistic world of the source text. And I'm suggesting that perhaps in the case of these three plays, the tactic of taking the reader into the source text world should be considered. In other words, make these farm implements sound as Spanish as possible. Now, if translation engages in that sort of essentialist view of what source worlds and target worlds are. We need to think about the ethics of that. Because translation is also alive with the political way in which we engage with the other. Dialectics of otherness are at the heart of the translation process. But in terms of making something work in the theatre, then drag hose, mattocks, don't do it for me. They don't take me to Spain 
they don't take me to a farm in, uh, in England or Ireland or a ranch or whatever you want to call it. They simply confuse me. And when you start to confuse, every, we need to be realistic about what an audience does in the theatre. An audience doesn't sit engrossed in a play. An audience blends in and an audience blends out. An audience blends out, sometimes for great reasons. I like this performance. Ooh, that change of lights was great. You blend out for bad reasons. Somebody beside you is opening a bag of revels. Uh, somebody beside you is talking and you blend out. If you blend out because the language is starting to, to jar, if the language isn't working in your here and now, not connecting with you, then it's lost. Then it's gone. Now, you'll make your own mind up about the house of Bernard Alba tonight. But the central thing that we've been trying to achieve is to, to graft this play back in to a different sort of tradition of, of making theatre. So I really look forward to hearing your, your views and your comments on that later on tonight. Thank you very much indeed.